Turn, if you would, in the Word of God to the letter of Jude. You'll find that just before the book of Revelation at the back of your Bibles. Jude, I'm going to read the whole chapter, the whole letter of Jude, who was one of the half-brothers of our Lord Jesus. But the sermon will focus on verses 20 and 21. Listen, this is God's Word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are all destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." 
But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And then here's a text. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's the reading of God's holy word. The turning of one year to another is often taken as a time for reflection upon one's life in the past and a determination to make changes in your life so that you might live a better life. And so all kinds of resolutions are made at this time of year, resolutions to spend less time on social media, to lose weight, to work more diligently, to pray harder, to be more faithful in reading the Word of God. All sorts of resolutions are made, and truth be told, at this time of year, a lot of resolutions are broken too. But here this morning, in the Word of God, we are given a resolution by God Himself. He wants us to live more faithfully and fruitfully for the glory of His name and for the honor of His Lord, of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so He gives us this resolution in verse 19, or 20 rather, and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the resolution, which, because it comes from God Himself as a command, and ought to be our resolution. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So, this is what God wants you to do in 2024. He wanted you to do it in 2023 as well, but He wants you to do it in 2024. He wants you to keep yourselves in the love of God. Of God. Well, this morning we want to look at what that means and see it in the context both of the broader letter and then of the verse itself. So, first of all, let's look at the context of this command to keep yourselves in the love of God. It is in the midst of a letter that Jude has written with some urgency to these Christians. These Christians were living in a particular congregation of God's people, but a congregation of God's people that had been infiltrated by professing Christians who were not really Christians. And so you can see this, for instance, in verse 4, where he talks about ungodly people who 
pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude wanted to write to them about the common salvation that we enjoy, perhaps about the blessings of the triune God. But he felt compelled to warn them because there had been so many within the church who professed to be Christians but were not living the Christian life. In fact, were denying their Christian confession by the way they were living. They thought that the grace of God gave them a get-out-of-jail-free card, that believing in Jesus Christ meant they could live whatever way they wanted, and they did live whatever way they wanted. They lived in sensuality and arrogance and in rebellion and grumbling and malcontentment and critical of other people. And by that, they had demonstrated that they did not really know the grace of God. They confessed the grace of God, but didn't really know the grace of God. And so Jude has some pretty solemn warnings about these type of people. He says that the gloom of outer Utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. Those who profess to be Christians but are not will not be saved by their confession. They have only the expectation of judgment. And Jude is saying to these readers, don't be like them. Don't make that mistake. Don't profess Christ but live an ungodly life. Rather, Keep yourselves in the love of God. So that's the context. They're living in the midst of false professors, people who shared in the Lord's Supper with them, but who were not really Christians. But there's another context, and this is the context of the letter itself. So Jude is going to tell them to keep themselves in the love of God. But he doesn't want them to think that this is an exercise that God leaves them to finish on their own. So that God just sits there, says, this is what you are to do, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he sits there with his arms folded and sees how they make out with this command. The Jew doesn't want you to make the mistake of thinking that your salvation depends solely on you. He wants you to keep yourselves in the love of God, which we'll see We'll see the meaning of that in a little while. But he doesn't want you to think that you're in this alone. So, he begins the letter by saying that this letter is to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ or kept by Jesus Christ. So, he, he, he addresses his letter to those who are kept. And then at the end of his letter, in verse 24, he talks about the one who is able to keep you from falling. So it's in the context of who our God is for us. We just sang about this God, Psalm 121. He's the great keeper. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He watches over us. He protects us. He provides for us. He keeps us from all evil. And so Judas say, keep yourselves in the love of God, but know that the God in whose love you are to keep yourself is the one who keeps you. Perhaps I could illustrate it this way. Imagine you have a a young daughter, three years old, and you're uh, about to go to Costco, and so you get out of the vehicle, and you say to your little girl, hold mommy's hand. And she does. But you're not so foolish to think 
that you don't need to hold her hand while she is holding yours. Because you know what little girls can do. They can become distracted. They can run off. They can endanger themselves. And so while you say to your little girl, hold mommy's hand, you are actually holding your little girl's hand in such a way that the only thing she can do is hold your hand. There's no way she could escape your grasp. That's what Jude's saying. Yes, keep yourselves in the love of God. But know this, God is keeping you. And then the third context. So the one is, they're living in the midst of false professors. Second is, they're to keep themselves in the love of God who keeps them. But the third thing is, is that James is writing this in love. He's urgent. He's warning them, but he loves them. Just notice verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation Verse 17, but you must remember beloved. And then verse 20, uh, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So this is an expression of a pastor's heart for his people, a heart that beats with love, that seeks their good, that is determined to pursue their blessing. That's the context of this command, keep yourselves in the love of of God. Well, what is that? Secondly, how do we understand that command? What does it mean to keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, the first thing we have to determine is how to understand the love of God. So, when I talk about the love of God, it could mean your love for God, or it could mean God's love for you. And it makes a difference which way you go. So if it is about your love for God, then the question is, how do you maintain that devotion, that affection to God? Or if it's the other way, how are we to keep ourselves in the sphere of God's love so that we enjoy His favor, so that we experience His smile upon us? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, commentators go both ways, but I think the best way to understand this is to understand it in terms of God's love for you. Keep yourselves in God's love, within the sphere of his love, so that you might experience his favor. Because that really is a great way to understand our salvation, isn't it? To understand our salvation as flowing from the love of of God. I prayed some of those things this morning in our congregational prayer, but it bears repeating. Why is it that some are chosen and others are not? Well, because of the love of God. This is what he said to uh, the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. Why did I choose you? It's not because you were greater than other nations or because you were better. In fact, you were stiff-necked and rebellious. But the Lord chose you because he loved you. So election flows from the eternal love of God. Why did God send his only begotten son into the world? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And why did Jesus die on the cross as a substitute for sinners? Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, the son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. 
And why would the Holy Spirit be so persistent in our life when we so often quench him and resist him and want nothing to do with him? Why does he press us forward so that he brings us into union with Jesus Christ? Well, it's because he loves us. That's why he's so determined. That's why he doesn't... uh, give in to our rebuffs. He loves us. We don't, we don't often think. We often think of the love of the Father and think of the love of the Son, but we don't often think of the love of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit loves us. That's why he puts up with us when we're so obstinate and difficult to be with. So salvation flows from the love of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you are to keep yourselves in that sphere of God's love so that you experience it day by day and rejoice in it in all of the trials and joys of our lives. Well, how do you do that? How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, I think the best way to understand that is to turn to John 14. There in the upper room discourse, the final words of our Lord Jesus before he went to the cross, he talks about the love of God. So John 14, it's always wonderful as a pastor when you hear the pages of the Scripture rustle as people turn to the passages that are indicated to them. I don't often do it, but occasionally it's very helpful for you to follow along in the Word of God. So John 14, verse 15 Listen to this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then jump down to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, listen, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now, let's put this together. Jude is not saying that we keep ourselves in love, in the love of God by keeping the commandments of God. No, that would be legalism. What he is saying is that we keep ourselves in the love of God by loving the Lord Jesus Christ, by trusting in him, by cherishing him, by clinging to him, by receiving him. And then he says, that is the Lord Jesus says, the way you demonstrate your love for me is by a life lived for my glory and praise. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not, if you keep my commandments, you will love me. No, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that obedience to the commandments of Christ is the demonstration, the expression of our love for Christ. And this is where these other Christians had gone wrong. They say, yes, we love the Lord Jesus. We cherish His grace. We wouldn't be anywhere without it. And then they disobeyed. They lived sensually and rebelliously and arrogantly and disobediently. And Jesus says, you can't do that. 
because your disobedience, your flagrant disobedience, your disregard for anything that the Lord Jesus loves is a demonstration that you have no concern or affection for the Lord Jesus at all because you give, you don't care at all about his commandments. And so it's love for the Lord Jesus. It's clinging to the Lord Jesus by faith. It's treasuring the Lord Jesus as your only sacrifice, as the the only one who can reconcile you to God. It's in that way that you keep yourselves in the love of God. Because as you love Christ, God the Father will love you. Remember how he says it the other way. If you do not receive me, Jesus says, you do not receive the one who sent me. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And whoever does not love the Lord Jesus Christ is not loved by God the Father. How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? By loving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the command. That's what you ought to focus on in 2024. Loving, cherishing, delighting in Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And then thirdly, I want to notice the context of that command. So if you look in your Bibles there in verses 20 and 21, you'll see that there are three ing words. So the command, the central command is in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then surrounding that command are these three ing words, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the commitments you make in order that you might be faithful to the command that God has placed upon you. So what does it mean to build yourselves up in your most holy faith? Well, again, we have to decide what faith is referring there to. It can either refer to my confession of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, or it can refer to the doctrines that we believe, the Christian faith, the truths that we confess about God. And, and again, this is the way that we ought to think of it, because in verse 3, James says that he found it necessary to write to them, to appeal to them, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the, this, this body of Christian truth regarding the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, humanity, sin, salvation, justice, mercy, all of these things, he says, build yourselves up in these things. Know these things. Learn these things. Relearn them if you've forgotten them. Learn them more deeply. Build yourselves up. I wouldn't be surprised at all this morning if I learned that some of you children receive Lego for Christmas. And what do you do with Lego? You put one brick on top of the other brick. You build up whatever item you've received. And this is how Christians are to live. They're to build themselves up, to grow, to have the foundation of love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to build on that foundation with the knowledge and embrace of truth. Because Satan trades in lies. Satan says sin's okay. God is not good. Gossip is all right. 
Grumbling and discontentment is normal in the Christian life. Those are the lies of Satan. And he has as, as many lies as there are truths. And we need to fill our minds and our hearts with biblical truth to combat the lies so that we might build ourselves up in the most holy faith in order to keep ourselves in the love of God. So let me urge you to do that this coming year, to build yourselves up the most holy faith, to be readers of the Word. There was a, a notice placed in the bulletin about various reading plans that you could follow to, to uh, read through the Scriptures in the year. Some of you have just started doing that recently and have found tremendous profit in doing so. Perhaps that's something you ought to do. Read more of the Scripture. Fathers, take the lead in your homes at family worship and teach your children and your family the truth of God. Don't just read the Scriptures and then close the Bible, but teach, share from God's Word. Apply your, the Word of God uh, to your family. And then do that as a congregation. Have spiritual conversations with each other. Encourage each other in the truth of God. If you have a family over for a cup of coffee and dessert some evening, just at the end of the evening, pull out the Word of God. Read the Scriptures together. Pray for one another. Encourage one another in the most holy faith. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Join Bible studies. Read Christian books. Our library is chock full of, of good, solid, biblical material that will cause you to grow in grace, to mature as the people of God. Because if you're not growing, you're slowing. That's the fact. You've, you've probably seen houses that, that the foundation has been laid and the superstructure was started to being built and then the builder stopped. Well, the house doesn't stay in the condition it was when the builder stopped. It always declines and decays unless it is finished. And same with Christians. So build yourselves up. Avail yourselves of public worship. Because this is one of the primary means that God has given you. The Lord's Day is not a family day. It's the Lord's Day. And it ought to be used for the worship of the Lord and for your own spiritual growth. It's a gift of God to you. This is why the Puritans called the Lord's Day the market day of the soul because on the Lord's Day you'd go to the market and you'd get all these things that you need for the rest of the week so that you might live healthily and strongly and faithfully for God. So avail yourselves of the Lord's Day. Make a commitment to come to morning and evening worship and to let nothing intervene because it's God's day and it's God's worship and in God's worship, God's word is proclaimed so that you might be built up in the most holy faith. And come not to grumble or complain or to criticize, but come with eagerness Come with a spirit that says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Come with this anticipation that I need the word of God more than I need my daily food. Because it's the word of God 
that is of more value than gold than much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think that this is some exotic prayer, that maybe he's talking about speaking in tongues. Well, it's not that exotic at all. Notice what he says about these unbelievers, these false professors in verse 19. These worldly people, they're devoid of the Spirit. And so to pray in the Spirit simply means to pray as a Christian. Pray in dependence upon the Spirit. Pray recognizing that the Spirit is the only one who can give us the strength to persevere in prayer. Thomas Manton said that uh, without the Holy Spirit, prayer is just babble. And this is probably, I don't know about you, but this is probably where most Christians find they are the weakness, weakest in prayer. I was reading a blog the other day where a fellow says that he can read chapters of Scripture and pray very little, using the Bible reading program that he had to actually keep him from prayer. And he thought that as long as I was reading the Scripture, I was okay. Well, it's important to read the Scripture, but it's important as well to pray, to pray in the Spirit. And it's hard work. I came across this by Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Evidently, he used to pray from two o'clock to four o'clock in the morning Every day he would wake up, pray for a couple hours, then go back to sleep because he understood how easily it was to be distracted. This is what he said, Satan will always find you something to do when you ought to be occupied with prayer, even if it is only arranging a window blind. You know it, don't you? You're determined to pray, and you begin to pray, and then you remember the oil needs to be changed, or the dishes need to be done, or the wash needs to be folded. Satan always wants to distract us from what is so important. So by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, devote yourselves to prayer. Personally, in your families, don't just do rote prayers, the one that you've done every day for years, but really pray. Lead your family in prayer. Think through the things that you need to pray for, what you need God's grace for, both for yourselves and for others and for the spread of the gospel. And then come to prayer meetings. There are two prayer meetings held in this church on the second Friday morning of every month and on the last Wednesday evening of every month. It's you cannot read the book of Acts without recognizing the commitment that the early church had to meetings for prayer. We pray in our congregational prayers on the Lord's days, but there were also meetings set aside for the gathering of God's people. This is part of our tradition. I used to think that it was only part of the Presbyterian tradition, but uh, we read the book Fruitful and Faithful as a council over the last year and uh, there was a chapter in there which uh, stated that it was very clearly part of the Dutch Reformed tradition as well. When, when the, the church came over to America in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they urged churches to meet monthly 
for prayer, to pray for the glory of God among the nations, to pray for the spread of the gospel, that Christ would be magnified throughout the ends of the earth. This was not public worship that they were encouraged to meet for. This was corporate congregational prayer. So I urge you to consider that, to pray with your brothers and sisters in the Spirit for the glory of God, for the blessing of His church, and for the magnification of His name. So keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. There's one more ING word, waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads you to eternal life. So this is what Jude is saying. I want you to think not just about the present, with all of its trials and difficulties and hardships and the pains of having people within the congregation who are not really Christians. I want you to think of eternal life, the future, because that will give you joy and confidence and the encouragement you need to press on in this world, to make all sorts of sacrifices, because you know, you know that the day is coming when life eternal in all of its fullness and all of its magnificent glory will be yours. This day, the noise of battle. The next, the victor's song. And so look forward to that day. May I encourage the elderly amongst us who are statistically the closest to glory from all of us. Though, of course, God in his providence can take anyone away at any time of life. But statistically, the elderly are closer to glory. And you could do us a favor, us who are younger, and I still place myself in that category, us who are younger, you can do us a favor by reminding us that one day you will see Christ and you cannot wait to see the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. That will spur us on. That will be an encouragement to us to live not for the things of this world with all of their passing pleasures, but together with you to keep our eyes fixed on the glory that will be revealed when Jesus Christ comes back. And then notice, as we wait, it's we're waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you just love that about Jude? He doesn't want you ever to think that you are contributing anything to your salvation if you make it to eternal life because you've kept yourselves in the love of God and because you're building yourselves up and because you're praying in the Holy Spirit. It's only because the God in whose love we're to keep ourselves is a God of mercy and that Christ Jesus is a merciful Savior, that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, but he deals with us in tender love and kind compassion. So wait, look forward, keep focused on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. So here, congregation of the Lord Jesus, loved by God, keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in the, Holy, in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting 
for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. Let's pray that God would work that in us by his grace. It has been good for us to sit under the ministry of your word, to be encouraged, to be challenged. And we pray, O gracious God, that you would write your word upon our hearts, that it would not just be something that we've heard, but that it would shape our lives. We all know areas of our life that need to be changed, areas that we're embarrassed to speak about, areas that we wouldn't want anyone else to know about. And we pray that you would give us grace, that we would pursue that by your Holy Spirit, and that we would help one another to pursue these things, that we would recognize that we are not islands, that we are members of one body, so that we would encourage one another daily to keep clinging to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. So bless us, so gracious God, we confess our weakness to you and know that if you did not keep us, we could not keep ourselves. So bless us in your great mercy, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.